have a story that my father told me on many occasions about my grandfather. He grew up in rural Sicily, dirt poor. I mean, they literally had a dirt floor. They lived in a shack, Anthony Drago Sr. Grew up in Sicily in a household with a number of kids. Um, his father died when he was very young. He was raised by his mother. Illness was rampant. He had a younger brother who at the age of five or six died of an illness. I'm not sure what the illness was because my father, as best as I can recall, at one point told me it was typhus and at one point told me it was tuberculosis. And one of the fears was that when this boy, this boy died of, let's call it consumption, when the boy died of consumption, that the neighbors would hear of it and to prevent the infection from spreading, the entire family would be barricaded in their house and the house would be burned to the ground. In an equally desperate attempt to prevent the family from being wiped out by their neighbors, they buried this little boy, not in a not in hallowed ground, not in, in you know in a churchyard, but beneath the hearth in their shack. And the funeral took place by candlelight around the hearth in the shack. My grandfather said that in the follow in the years following that, his mother would sit by the lump of dirt, the gravesite of her child, and cry. And it occurs to me that there is a beginning there that I can draw from. I can see that as being the start of this novel. Welcome back to Legacy. This is Episode 2, Beginning. My name is Helena Drago. Last episode, my husband Ty and I talked about his father and the extraordinary thing he did during his last year of life. Twenty-five years ago, my father-in-law Tony died of cancer. But before dying, he recorded a novel on cassette tapes that tell a tale of danger and of adventure. Of three Sicilian brothers who immigrate to Philadelphia in 1910 and try to become American. Ty is planning to take these recordings and write his next novel, collaborating with his deceased father, and he plans on taking you, our listeners, on that journey. So, here we go. Step one, beginning. How to start a novel. Ty's been listening to his dad's tapes, and it's been an emotional roller coaster ride for him hearing his dad's voice from 25 years ago. But he is loving the story his dad is telling. I hear him upstairs in his office, pacing, listening through his headphones, taking notes, laughing randomly, sometimes coming down the stairs a little misty eyed. He is starting his writing process. He's planning. He's not yet written. One word. He is thinking. You're right, Helena. I am. The problem is that my father left behind seven tapes. The first is number two, which means somewhere along the way, tape number one was lost. So I don't have Dad to guide me as I dive into the beginning of his novel, of our novel. What I do have are his stories. While never an author in his own right, my father was a natural storyteller and most of his stories centered around my grandfather's exploits. In the Drago tapes, Dad fictionalizes many of these stories, but not quite all. What you all heard at the beginning of this episode is one of my Dad's stories that he didn't record, at least 
not on any of the tapes that survived. Though, to be honest, it wouldn't surprise me at all if this particular tale appeared on the Lost Tape 1. Set in a small town in rural Sicily sometime around 1905 or 1906, this story of a family's fear and tragic loss seems a perfect place to begin, doesn't it? But before I start putting pen to paper, or in the more modern vernacular fingers to keyboard, let me share some general thoughts on the first great mystery every writer faces. How to start their book. What is rapidly becoming our M.O., Ty and I went out back with a glass of wine to talk through some tips on how to start your novel and how to get your creative juices flowing. Here are some snippets of that conversation. So Ty, what is your best advice on how to start a novel? Start the story where it starts. The idea of long Victorian novels that started with some epic description of a sunset or a a field of clover are over. You need to begin the story at a moment of, of time that is relevant to the story, and really the story cannot be told from any point prior or, or after that moment. That's the moment you start. It can be difficult to find that moment, but you get there. I generally look for a pivotal or seminal moment in the characters' lives. Some incident that helps define them. It doesn't have to be exactly at the point when the beating and storing would begin. That's the purpose of a prologue. But it, it defines their character going forward. And I have spoken to you previously about this, but one of the things you always say to me is the first sentence or the first paragraph needs to grab the reader. Well, yeah, here's the thing. Here's the thing about the modern publishing world. When you send a story into a publisher, whether it's a magazine or a book publisher or a literary agent, you are going into what is typically called a slush pile. A slush pile is the industry term for the mountain of submissions that these guys receive on a daily basis. I'm an editor myself. I have my own slush pile. One quick sidebar. Ty is the founder, publisher, and managing editor of an online magazine called Allegory. Every year, he receives thousands of submissions of science fiction, horror, and fantasy from new and established authors from all around the world, making him very familiar with slush piles. Okay, back to the backyard. So they have editors, usually junior editors, who sit down all day and they read slush. You know, usually it's electronic these days. It used to be back in the day it was actual physical paper, but, but these days it's electronic. It's like 50 or 60 emails to get through in the first hour. So how do they do that? They open the first story. They read for maybe 30 seconds, if you're lucky. If what they read in those 30 seconds does not wow them, they're going to stop, and they're going to go on to the next story because they don't have time to see if this writer is going to get better as it goes along. They're, they're going to say, okay, you're done, and they go to the next one. I do that myself. When I read my slush, I open up the first one, I read the first page, and if that doesn't wow me, you're done, and I move on to the next. That's the pretty ruthless. Well, it's a necessity. If you've got a thousand of these to go through, how can you possibly read every single one of them through to the end? You'd never get done. You have no choice. We are living in a modern age. Computers have made writing so much easier. And everything was a typewriter. There were fewer people submitting work. 
because it was a lot harder to write a finished story. These days, with, com with computers, it's much easier. So there are a lot more writers out there, and that means there's a lot more submissions and editors of people. Okay, so how do you wow them in the first sentence, the first paragraph? That's, that's the great mystery of the whole thing, isn't it? Because you have 30 seconds to impress this person. You want a first line that makes them want to read the second line. And then you want a second line that wants to make them read the third, and so on. And that's the way the book is written. It's, it's a matter of finding something that will draw them in, pull them in, begrudgingly, reluctantly, pull them along. When I read a story that makes me read to the end, dang it, I got 60 more stories to read, but this one's just pulling me in. That's a successful story. Those are the ones that make sales. I'm putting you on the spot here. Do you have an example of a great beginning? Sure. My Undertaker series. The first book of the Undertaker series, I submitted to 40 different agents trying to get a new literary agent back then. And of those 40 literary, literary agents, two of them responded back and said, I want to read the entire manuscript. I ended up picking one. I sold her because I wrote a great query letter, but we'll get to that another time. And because I had a first line, it, it read something like this. On a cold October day that would mark the end of one life and the beginning of another, I found out my next door neighbor was a walking dead man. That's a pretty good first line. I like to think so. And she has told me that that's, that drew her in. That made her want to, want to read more. So if they want to find out what the exact sentence and paragraph is, they should read Rise of the Read the Corpse. Undertaker series, book one, Rise of the Corpses, if you want to see exactly what the first line is. Just a little plug. <laughs> <laughs> Back to business. Back to business. But I've read a lot of good first lines. I've read, I've read this one short story that I ended up publishing where the first line started with, the minute I felt the bullet hit my brain, I thought to myself, ah, not again. And I was intrigued. So I ended up reading that story, I ended up publishing that story. That first line is important. The first line has to feed into the second and the third and the fourth, and you have to keep pulling the reader through. And that is the epitome of starting the story where it starts. I couldn't help but notice that Ty quoted first lines from horror stories. This prompted me to ask him whether or not the genre of a book was an important thing for a writer to consider as he starts his or her book. Here's what he had to say about genre. So when a writer's starting off, the writer's job is to understand the genre, the unwritten rules behind that genre, and meet those expectations so that the readership relates to the work. For example, in the mystery genre, you frequently see passages of dialogue that include a suspect providing a tremendous amount of exposition in a very short period of time. Uh, far more exposition than when you generally hear in, in casual conversation. People just don't talk about, with all that much background. And fortunately for mystery writers, that technique is very familiar to mystery readers. They're accustomed to it and they accept it without thinking twice. In science fiction, that kind of exposition especially in a genre that focuses heavily on background and world building, is absolutely frowned upon. It comes off as contrived and inauthentic, and the readers tend to reject it. So what works in mystery doesn't work in science fiction, and there are a lot of differences amongst the genres along those lines. And what genre do you think this book you're writing is going to be? 
Well, there's a genre called mainstream. It refers to novels that don't get locked into any other genre. I mean, this one might seem like historical fiction, but historical fiction generally refers to a actual historical event that is being fictionalized. When you're dealing with a situation like this, which is, you know, three unknown, utterly fictional characters coming into 1910 Philadelphia, well, these guys are not going to be running into Teddy Roosevelt. So the genre I'm envisioning for it is more of a mainstream. It's more of a book that will cater to an audience that has a broader eclectic taste that appreciates the drama without all of the historical context and personages that makes historical fiction readers so excited. Ty started talking about bringing authenticity into your novel by doing research on characters, setting, and timeline. I asked Ty whether it was important to write about what you know. Here's what he had to say. I mean, it's nonfiction, yes. You absolutely have to write what you know. When it's fiction, the most success I've had as a writer has been from a series about zombies. Yeah, but it was a series about zombies that were based in a city that you were extremely familiar That's with. That's true. I think that when you're writing fiction, writing what you know is a good place to start. But it should by no means be your end point. I have my father's tapes, and I have the stories, which I do know extremely well. And I have the spirit of those stories. I have my memories of the man whose life inspired these stories. And I can draw from all of that. From that standpoint, yeah, I'm starting with what I know, and I'm building from what I know. And that's, that's a writer's job. So you write what you know, but you need to build on that and expand further. So what you don't know, you don't know. What you don't know, you go find out. Right. You know, we live, in, we live in the modern age. We live in the age of the internet, where pretty much anything, if you dig deep enough, you can find. Mr. Google knows it all. You know, when I'm writing science fiction and fantasy, I've been known more than once to reach out to experts and ask questions. I may reach out to historians about this one to, to get key pieces of information that I can't find elsewhere. I'm doing research into 1910 Sicily. I have found a map of Sicily around the turn of the last century. I don't know what part of Sicily my grandfather grew up in. My father didn't know. So I'm picking a rural part of Sicily because the setting has to be rural, something far from the coast where it's going to, where it's going to be mostly a farming community. I'm basically gonna put a pin in a map. This will be the village. The action moves to Philadelphia, which is where 90% of the book takes place. They're going to be coming into the Washington Immigration Center you and I are going to take a little field trip and check that out. So what is the value of visiting that? What are you going to gain from it? Atmosphere, uh, a sense of connection, and intimate contact with the times, I'm hopeful. Here's the thing about research. There is a rule in research called the Ben Bova rule. Um, at least that's what I call it. And... Ben Bova is a, is a famous award-winning writer, science fiction writer, who writes a lot of space travel books. And in his space travel books, he has often written that he knows every spaceship from its nose to its engines. He researches it, he understands the, the, the mechanics of it, he understands the science behind it, he's got it down. Of all of that research, maybe 5% makes it into the book.
because it's not necessarily the plot, but he knows it because knowing it tells him A, how much he needs to use, and B, it adds a subtle authenticity. That's the key to research overall in my mind is the Ben Bova rule. I'm gonna do a ton of it. Only 5% of it may end up in the plot, but the fact that I know it will add a subtle authenticity to the story. At least that's the goal. Twenty-five years ago, sitting at home with his tape recorder, developing his novel, Tony also realized the need for research. Listen in on a couple of clips from Tony's tapes, discussing his research on Sicily, and included are Ty's response to them. The Italians on the mainland, and especially in the north, the ones that controlled Italy, did not consider Sicilians really Italians because, as you can see from reading the encyclopedia... Hold up. Did he say encyclopedia? In 1992, when my father made these tapes, there was no internet to speak of. Not yet. And even if there were, he didn't own a computer. What he did own was a set of New World encyclopedias. Remember them? I do. As a kid in my parents' house, I used to peruse them occasionally. My dad, on the other hand, frequently read them, for fun. At the time, being a teenager, I didn't get the appeal. Today, approaching 60, I kind of do. It was basically the 90s version of browsing the web. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that his go-to research material for this book should be Volume S of the New World Encyclopedia. After all, this was a very sick man nearing the end of his life. And a trip to the library to search for deeper material just wasn't in the cards. This was an area that was controlled by many different countries all throughout the Mediterranean, throughout history, and only became part of Italy again in the middle of the 19th century. Sicily. On your atlas, it's the soccer ball that Italy's boot, quote-unquote, looks like it's kicking. It has the dubious honor of being the single most conquered piece of real estate on the planet. Fortunately... In lieu of the New World Encyclopedia, there is a native Sicilian website called The Best of Sicily. It's a detailed, tourist-oriented site that claims to be edited in Sicily by Sicilians. They also suggest that Sicilians invented the wheel. No, they really do. And they make a pretty solid case for it as well. Smithsonian Magazine disagrees. They insist that the earliest wheels were, in fact, found in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. But the point is that Sicilians are proud of being Sicilian, and rightly so. For the record, my grandfather was born in Sicily, married a Sicilian woman, had three Sicilian-American sons, and I myself am half Sicilian-American. So yeah, we totally invented the wheel. You got a problem with that? And therefore, the people that were running the government never gave much thought to the Sicilians. And so they suffered insofar as standard of living. And that is why when the big migration to the United States came from Italy, most of it was from Sicily and the southern end of Italy. You must remember that most of the people from Europe that came to this country were the peasants, not only from Italy, but throughout all of Europe. And they had been exploited for centuries. Well, he's not wrong. 
However, the encyclopedia entry doesn't quite capture it. The Sicilian standard of living, never great, didn't thrive too well under Italian rule. Between 1880 and 1914, four million Italians, most of them from either Sicily or southern Italy, emigrated to the U.S., with fully half that number crossing the Atlantic between 1900 and 1910 alone. And therein lies our tale. I'm happy to report that since we started episode two, Ty has started writing. But already he's telling me he's having trouble finding the right voice for the book. Join us in two weeks' time when he will talk about finding the right voice in your novel and how to overcome writer's block. Ty and I will soon be visiting the Philadelphia port where thousands of Italian immigrants entered the United States. And we'll take you on our field trip. I hope you'll join us. If you're enjoying listening to Legacy, please give us a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Legacy is a podcast written and produced by Ty and Helena Drago. The music you've been listening to is called Dirty Mac, performed by Endless Love, found on YouTube's library.